Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm just peachy. I'm a lot better than the Cowboys are. Uh, but then again, we can say that about most people. Most can't we? are. Yes, I believe it. Most are. Yeah, exactly. And also joining us is our old pal, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Hello, gentlemen. Nothing wrong with the team I cover. Everything's fine. Oh, just a city full of losers. City of losers. That's going to be my, my projection. We'll for my head. For the, for the billboard. How about that? I don't know. Well, the Mavericks might be pretty good, and then the Stars were pretty good. Just limited to Arlington. Arlington, City of Losers. Arlington City? Wow. Maybe maybe we didn't really want them after all. Richard Green, you can have the Rangers. You can have the Cowboys. We don't I want. I think you're a few mayors behind. I'm a few mayors behind. But you know, he's the one that we associate with all of that, right? He was no, the he one got, that... He got the ballpark built. I think it was Mayor Jeff that got uh, Globe Life Field built. And I don't know who who's he, what's this. But I'll tell you what, they, Arlington's making plenty of money. Um, when on Friday night you've got Bad Bunny at AT&T Stadium, a high school game at Choctaw Stadium, a former ballpark in Arlington, and Josh Young making his debut at Globe Life Field. And then on Sunday you've got the Cowboys and the Rangers both playing at home. So they're pulling in the dollars on parking. As long as people will park, everybody's happy. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm more interested in your obsession with Bad Bunny. You mention it like every other sentence. Is it you just think it's a funny name? Do you well, actually listen to Bad Bunny? I've listened to a little bit of Bad Bunny casually. I, I'd like to point out that several years ago when I did a big Alex Claudio feature that was a giant boondoggle of sending me to Puerto Rico for a guy who was ultimately traded for a draft pick. Um, we sent Evan to Puerto Rico for an Alex Claudio story. He was a big bad bunny guy. Um, and uh, um, and then this week, David, you and I got thrown on the Investigate Bad Bunnies concert. Bad Bunny beat, yes. Yeah, the Bad Bunny uh, concert destroying of stadiums beat, which I had to point out to everybody was, you know, he was in Houston. The outfield in Houston is looks like a Civil War battlefield after that concert. Here's the deal. If you would put up the Houston Philharmonic out there, that grass in Houston never grows during the summertime. It's one of the reasons that they should have artificial turf down there. And so Mr. Bunny, as I like to refer to him, uh, I don't think had anything really to do with the concert grass being destroyed or the stadium grass being destroyed. But, yes, referring to him as Mr. Bunny makes me laugh. I thought that was Mr. Moose. The Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Moose. Okay, thank you for the old guy reference there. <laughs> it's just you're talking about you're, if you're going to put uh, these appellations on animals, I'm going to go to Mr. Moose. Okay, all right, that's just the way it is. Me, me and right. Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan, he's the great one. Uh, all right, uh, so moving along, Bob Ke- Bob Keeshan once coached the Cowboys. People don't realize that. No, that that was Wade Phillips. It was. Oh, that was Wade Phillips. That's right. Topic. That's right. I forgot. Okay, I get them mixed up all the time. Uh, that happens to me all the time. Okay, uh, so let's let's talk about this. I I, I got to tell you, David. Uh, you know, I, I was off on Sunday. I was not having to be out there at uh, Jerry World. There were a and, lot of people and, who were off at Jerry World on yes, Sunday. The, yes, there they didn't were. Have to be there to be off. Yes, exactly. But I'm thinking, while I'm watching, I'm thinking, there is so much bad in this game, I don't even know where to start. Where would you even start in writing about that game? You would have had to have written 
2,500 words to encapsulate all of it. It was just uh, certainly, uh, you know, I, I have I can't remember breakfast, but it seems to me that is the worst Cowboys opener I think I've ever seen. For, for the, the level of offensive ineptitude, uh, it, it certainly ranked up there. You know, after the game, Jerry Jones, when when presented with that question about being the la- worst opener of his tenure, said, um, well, you know, that first opener we had when I owned the team was pretty bad, and they were shut out by New Orleans. But the big difference was no one expected that team to do any – not only didn't expect, there was no reason for that team to be successful that year with where their with what their roster was, where they were in their development. Jimmy Johnson first coming into the league, no one thought that team was going to be good. This is a team that won the division, is coming off a twelve and five record, and has designs on being one of the top teams in the NFC this season to perform as poorly as it did offensively at home in the opener, uh, really, uh, really flabbergasted some people, I would say, with how bad they looked. Yeah. All right, well, let's get to uh, the news of the day, which is Monday as we're, or Tuesday as we're taping this. Uh, and you have a, a development on, uh, on Dak Prescott and his injury to his right thumb. Yeah, this, he, uh, he had a fractured thumb. The, the organization had braced itself uh, for the very real possibility that he was not going to return until after the bye week, which would put him in the second half of the season. And it was looking like the best case scenario was for him to return uh, on against Green Bay on November the 13th. Well, after they did the surgery and talking to some people this morning, it turns out that once they got in there, they discovered he had an extra articular fracture. And that is that is a fracture where the break occurs above the wrist joint and doesn't extend into the joint itself. So that is a less severe fracture. Uh, they were operating under the assumption that it was an intra-articular fracture, which extends into the joint and does that prolonged six to eight week period, best case scenario, in some cases longer uh, on that, depending on the damage in the joint. But since this fracture was above the joint and didn't extend into it, um, they feel now that he is going to return in October. This is a four to six week. In fact, now this may be overly optimistic, but Jerry Jones said on his a radio show earlier today that they weren't even going to place Dak Prescott on injured reserve and will hold out hope that he can, which means if you're on injured reserve, you're out for four games. So they're holding out hope that he would be back for four games from now, which would be that LA Rams game on October 9th. To me, that seems a little overly optimistic, although it does fit in with Jerry's worldview of, uh, of uh, unrelenting optimism, uh, but but I do think I do think it makes it uh, a little more viable that that Dak Prescott is uh, a viable return for him would be October sixteenth in that game against Philadelphia, and you know Dak is a guy Dak has a twenty five and six record against teams in the NFC East during his career. Um, they were faced with the prospect of having to play three division games without Dak Prescott. Now the fact he may be able to be back for this 
third preseason game in this stretch uh, against a team that is the most uh, their biggest competitor to win the division. Uh, I think really gives them a, an emotional lift because, uh, uh, yeah, emotionally, I think this, you know, the it's diametrically opposed to where this team was yesterday before the surgery. Um, they were saying all the right words, but you could tell that they were really emotionally drained and, and knew what they were facing. But uh, while it's still going to be very difficult, especially based on what we saw of this offense with Dak Prescott in the opener. Uh, you know, let's, and we'll dive into that a little bit. I mean, he was there and they had no chance to win that game. So how much are they going to improve, uh, which is a key, but at least now I, I think there's like, it, it's a lot different to hold the fort for four to five games versus seven to eight games, it, which is now what they're faced with. Yeah, that would be good news. You would think if, if Dak had been playing well, when he, when he broke his ankle, uh, that horrific injury, he, he was playing great. Uh, yeah, he went out of that game. In this particular game, uh, you know, it, it just defied description to watch Dak out there. Um, he, he looked like he had happy feet. He looked like he did not trust the pocket, did not trust the people blocking for him. Uh, he could not find an open receiver. So then he started forcing balls uh, in the situations where there would be two and three defensive backs around uh, some of the receivers he was trying to throw get the ball to. And um, I just thought it was uh, it was. It was not statistically his worst game. He's had worse games than that uh, in his career. Not a lot, uh, but two or three. But um, considering everything that we had been told, and of course he didn't play very much in the preseason, hardly played at all. He did play in those controlled scrimmages. um, But it just, the Cowboys looked completely lost. He looked completely lost. The wide receivers looked completely lost. And so, how much all of that is a product of the offensive line struggles, uh, which certainly there were those. You had uh, not only were you breaking in a, a new left tackle, you ended up breaking in a new left guard, and also the struggles of Terrence Steele at right tackle with four penalties, three pre-snap penalties. Um, so that was a debacle. And then I, I got to tell you that the best wide receiver the Cowboys had was Noah Brown. Uh, C.D. Lamb supposed to be their uh, leading receiver, and – he looked lost. His body language in that game was so poor, um, and the, and his efforts. And the one time they tried to run a screen to him out on the left side. Dalton Schultz got pushed back into him a little bit. The ball comes to him. He reaches out for it, then pulls his hands back suddenly, like it, like maybe he thinking maybe I'm not supposed to catch this ball. Uh, it was just one thing after another uh, in that game offensively. And then we, you know, if we can get get over to Kellen Moore who on the, what, the third play of the game decides to run a reverse that loses eight yards after they just had two nice games. They've been running good, yeah. You know, this is, to me, the thing about this this Cowboys offense, invariably what happens, and I, and I made this comment when I was discussing the Texas game with, with my son over the weekend. I was in Austin for that game. You know, Texas really couldn't run the ball very well against Alabama at all, and that's not a surprise. Alabama has a great defense. But the thing was about Texas, they kept trying. They kept, they kept running the ball, and they did have some success, and it did set up what they were trying to do in their passing game, the fact that they were having some success running the ball. But, but the Cowboys desert the running game so fast, they're always willing to do that. You know, Zeke was, was running well. That was the one thing that that offensive line was doing was run blocking, and why they gave up on that in a game that was never really that far away from them, it just mystified me. 
Well, there's a lot there to unpack, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was that was my monologue about the game. All right, let, let's let's start with since we <laughs> talked about the fact that Dak is going to be back at some point, and, and obviously we're assuming that Cooper Rush is the starter and that Will Greer will be the backup he quarterback. Is the going yeah. forward. Cooper Rush is the starter. Yes. All right. All right let, so let's start about what's going to happen now in the offensive line. Do you expect uh, this week for the Bengals? Do you expect Tyler Smith, the rookie, first round draft pick, will will start again at left tackle? Yes, I do. I think he played well enough. Uh, the initial look of what he did in that game, uh, he was very good in the run game, which they knew. Um, and, you know, a lot of this was people would say, well, they re- Dallas was as most successful when they were running to the right, which means they were running away from Tyler Smith, uh, away from his side. That That's not true. They, they believe that one of the things he does best now is pull and get to that second level. So they were actually, in running to the right, it wasn't, they didn't trust Tyler Smith. They were also playing to his strength of where he is right now and pulling and getting that second level going to the right. And uh, you you saw some very impressive run blocking from him in that game. Uh, There was one play where where he slid down and allowed a guy to come around on the outside. Uh, You know, when you watch that tape, it's still unclear whether that was his fault or it appears to be that he just took the wrong read and went inside when he should have stayed out. But all in all, actually held up pretty well. Uh, I think held up well enough where they would say, let's go ahead and start him uh, at left tackle in the Cincinnati game. Uh, Jason Peters was described yesterday as still in the ramp up phase. I still think it's most likely that he returns uh, that next week against the New York Giants, September 26th, and will work into the line. Um, You're going to have to decide what to do at left guard now, though. Connor McGovern's out. Barniak came in for him and played there. Did they feel good enough about how he played? Were they just leave him there? Um, I, I think probably that's what they would lean toward doing this week. Uh, they're not going to replace Steele at right tackle, but that was not a good game for him. Uh, as you mentioned, four penalties, three false starts, uh, one holding, three of those on one possession. Um, that was an uncharacteristic game for him. He doesn't usually make those kind of mistakes. But the offensive line still, you don't feel real good about where it is right now. But I would argue maybe you feel better about that than you do the receiving core. Yeah. Uh, I tell you right now, um, you know, the Cowboys, of course, took the the attitude that when they traded Amari Cooper to the Browns, and I have to say I did not argue with that one. Because he's going to be making $20 million, that's a lot of money to be paying a guy to catch 800 yards worth of passes. You know, I, I, I got that one. But they also let Cedric Wilson go, and I like Cedric Wilson. And the, the think it was that, well, you know, Kevontae Turpin replaces him. He's just as good. Uh, and, and speaking of which, that was another thing on their special teams. We didn't we left that out in my, in my overview. Uh, I think they need to be telling Kevontae Turpin, if you're in the end zone, put, put a knee down, pal. Uh, he, he ran out the, the one time he had a great return. It was called back because of holding. Uh, he, he continually gave the Cowboys a poor p- field position by electing to, to return kicks and ended up in the 10, 15, 14 yard line area. Uh, Very quickly. I, you won't like this answer, but John Fossil said yesterday that he had no problem with Cavate Turpin returning those kicks from the end zone, ugh. which, which tells you, what they thought he thought it was more of a protection issue than it was poor decision making on Turpin, which shows you they've empowered Turpin to take those chances because they believe he can do something with it. 
Well, I don't think there's any question about that. That was one of the things that, that Mike McCarthy said after the game. Well, we were really counting on – it was like you were expecting to return one for a touchdown. Is right. that what you were thinking, Mike? Well, and, and then they wouldn't have lost as bad. <laughs> they would have lost. <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. All right, so uh, so, so in the uh, in that wide receiver core, uh, Noah Brown certainly looked like their best receiver in that game. Uh, so was dependable. C.D. Lamb's uh, development. Just the fact though, you uttered that statement tells you how bad the receiving room. No, is. that's exactly right. Uh, you know, everybody was expecting C.D. Lamb to step up now, and obviously he had a good season last year. But there were moments in last year uh, in last season where he, he did not perform well. And at the end of the season, he really started to tail off and that is now carried over into this season. I, I, is there some kind of problem with CD and, and Dak Prescott and any, any kind of connection there? That's a difficulty. What's the, what's the situation there? Well, two receptions on 11 targets, which is what happened in that opener is not a good return on investment no. and does not install you as a solid lead receiver. Uh, you know, CD lamb spoke going into the game about how he'd been preparing to be a lead receiver in the NFL. Uh, this was his moment. He was going to make the most of it. Uh, thought he should be mentioned in the same uh, conversation as the Cooper Cups of the NFL, and he was going to show that. He did not show it in that game. Uh, as it went along, you're right. Uh, and, you know, some people go, oh, don't tell me about the body language. Look, just see whether the, you know, just show me the stats. Just show me what happened. But I guarantee you coaches study body language uh, during games, and they base a lot of their interactions with the players on what they see in body language. And I'll tell you this, if you're going to be the lead receiver, you need to have good body language. You can't look discouraged. You can't look down. You can't become frustrated. If it is, it has to be a momentary thing, and then you move right on. Uh, there is a certain temperament required to being a starting quarterback, a lead receiver, uh, whatever lead position there is on a team from a talent perspective, there's a temperament that goes with that. I have always thought that C.D. Lamb had the temperament to be a lead receiver from what I thought. In fact, in some ways, I thought it was better suited for that position temperamentally than Amari Cooper or Michael Gallup. That being said, you have to perform, and once you're in that position, it does feel a little different. And uh, rather than rise above the frustration uh, that offense felt in the opener, I would say that C.D. Lamb sunk to uh, the level of frustration that was going on around him. Yeah, it's that. That's one issue, and for me, another issue is is that uh, CD doesn't run great routes. That's the thing we got from Amari Cooper: very precise routes. He, yeah, he always got himself open. That was the the thing that distinguished himself as a wide receiver, and still does. That's his primary uh, benefit: is that he just runs such clean routes that he's always able to get himself open. Uh, CD doesn't do that. And he doesn't do a good job when he's working against a defensive back. He doesn't flatten out his routes at times when he needs to and fight off that defensive back. He gets turned too much by other defensive backs. There was a slant that the Dak tried to throw to him and, and the defensive back was undercutting him and he put his hands up uh, in a, in a passive way to try to catch a pass instead of trying to go back to get it. It's just little nuances that like like that that he he doesn't really take advantage of. And, he, and it, frankly, I didn't see this kind of stuff when he was at Oklahoma. When he was at Oklahoma, I thought he was the, the, the best you know wide receiver after the catch in the country. He was unbelievable what he could do. And I think that that's the thing about, 
about CD is he's always relied on his ability after the catch. He's not working enough on what he needs to do before he gets the ball. That's a good point. I was having that conversation uh, after the game uh, mon- uh, Sunday night with someone who said the same thing. It's like, we never saw anything like this in college. He he was just dominant. But and, and, and McCarthy said this wasn't in specific response to C.D. Lamb, but McCarthy was talking about in his Monday press conference overall the struggles the wide receiving group had. And he said, well, Tampa Bay was undercutting our routes, and we, we didn't do a good job adjusting to that. Uh, certainly, while he didn't single C.D. Lamb out, that was who that was the primary culprit, right? When you have eleven targets and only two catches, so yeah, he has to do. Uh, he had the Cowboys will do everything they can to put him in position to utilize his run after catch, but there are certain things he has to do with his route running uh, to get into those positions, and, and we'll see. That that's the area uh, you would say at this point where he needs to improve to to live into his full potential. All of this being said. At this point, I'm just willing to say this was a bad game. I do not think that C.D. Lamb is a bad receiver, but this was a bad game for him. Yeah, no question about that. All right. Well, I know we're, uh, Christian is signaling that we need to wrap this up. I want to go through one thing really fast here. So He's we're glaring have, at you. Let's say, let's say that he comes back for the Eagles, that Dak comes back for the Eagles game on uh, October the 16th. That leads, There's five games then that they'll have played before then. They've already botched the first one so what do we say their record's going to be when Dak comes back if let's say if he comes back against the Eagles well to remain viable you want to be at least two and three going into that game right and and understand too that this will be Prescott's first game back if that's how it unfolds and that game is on the road in Philadelphia so that's going to be a tough game for them anyway so just because he's back doesn't mean they're going to win the game if they don't win at least two games while he's out now suddenly you're looking at them being one and four going into the Philadelphia game which I would say would be difficult to win anyway then you're you're pushed to the brink pretty early in the season and uh to, to crawl back in uh especially is difficult and the other thing here is if you don't win two games in this stretch um you know, three of these games through Philadelphia are division games. That means you're losing in the division and you're losing tiebreakers. So I would say two and they somehow need to go two and three. But I would think based off of what we saw in the opener, one and five, may, I mean, one and four may be a more realistic uh, record going into that game. Evan? Yeah, listen, I we haven't even addressed the one thing that was completely fixable. Um, this offseason, and that was how sloppy this team is when it comes to penalties. They've been penalized 10 times, six times in the Mike McCarthy era in, in 28 games. Um, it's, it's just inexcusable for me, and as long as the team continues to execute like that um, on things that are fixable, they're going to have a hard time with or without Dak Prescott. And so I look at the schedule, and I, I look at they'll either beat the Giants or on the road, or they'll beat Washington at home, and they're going to go into that Eagles game one and four. That's it. And they're, they're going to have an uphill battle all season at this point in time. Yeah, that's what I say. I say one and four. I'm giving them the Washington game at home, and they're, they're not going to beat the Giants on the road, uh, especially if they're not going to stop the run any better than they did uh, against the Bucks. Because Saquon Barkley looks like Saquon Barkley, who came out of Penn State now. Again, looks 
completely healthy, had, what, 164 yards in, the, in their opener. Uh, you know, he's a lot better than Leonard Fournette is. So uh, we'll, we'll see what the Cowboys can do. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment. We're going to move over now to the Rangers. Evan, uh, so we've had a couple developments uh, since the last time we had a podcast, which I believe was 1964. Um, And that was that uh, Josh Young has come up. Uh, I always want to call him Carl Young. Why why couldn't they have named one of their kids that, right? I, I, you know, I think you're getting a little too medical, metaphysical for me. Meta, 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 meta. Yeah, something, something. Anyway, so so Josh Young comes up and his first at bat, he hits a home run. Holy cow, what a deal! Uh, and he has also hit a, another home run in the five games he's played, and he's hit two doubles. Uh, this guy is a a power hitting machine. He's also a strikeout machine here in the early going. But I say, all things considered, that's been a pretty spectacular start. Well, I, I think that, uh, listen, the fact that he's playing at all this year in the field is pretty spectacular given the injury that took place uh, in February. Um, and there was a lot of hype around Josh Young. The Rangers, the Rangers tried to hype him up. Um, the fans were, were ready for some hype because this team has been such a afterthought and because production of – Homegrown talent has been so poor over the past decade uh, that there was there was reason for hype. And Josh delivered that home run to, to start his career. It's first time, the first time a Ranger has made his major league debut at home with a home run um, in his first at bat. So he really delivered for for what fans were hoping. Um, and then two days later, a golden sombrero. Uh, so I, you're going to have some highs and lows with with a guy who's making his his adjustment to the big leagues. But the fact that Josh is up here and the fact that he is showing pull side power, both of his home runs have been to left field. This was considered a question when he was drafted, how much pull side power he'd have. I think the strikeout rate is going to come down significantly. So I will say this, while he was ramping up at at Round Rock this year, the strikeout rate was a little bit higher than it had been in his minor league career. I don't know if Josh was trying to get in as many swings as possible while he was down there or if it's something he's going to need to address. But really, the only thing that gets accomplished in these first three weeks is just getting acclimated to the big leagues. Get Understand what your routine needs to be. This is a guy who is big on routine, who is a guy that's the guy who is big on prep and if he can get all of that kind of situated for next year that's going to be a really good learning base for going into the 2023 season yeah i think this has been invaluable for him to to do this i know that sometimes people get into the whole thing about starting a guy's clock you know oh we don't want to do that for negotiating purposes down the road but i think this was invaluable to get him back on the field now now he's he's been back after it was basically a lost season for him uh, reclaim a little bit of that, kind of uh, tell himself, hey, look, see, you can do this. This is this is all good. It has to be good for his confidence. It has to be good for how he feels about going into the offseason, what he's going to do. Uh, and and uh, I guess I, I want to ask you that question, too, considering the offseason. Will he play any winter ball or anything like that, do you think? I th- that's still open to discussion. I think they're still talking about that. Uh, when we uh, when we approached Chris Young about it, um, last week that that would that still hadn't been there still hadn't been a determination made 
um, they may want to actually get some rest in too after he did so much rehab to get ready for this season. So um, it wouldn't hurt for him to play a couple of weeks and then come home. It, it wouldn't, and I, I, you know, I, I think that it, it's certainly it's certainly a discussion, and he could go. He could go to the instructs, right? You know, and and, and go to the, the the spring training facility and work out for another two or three weeks as soon as the season ends. So that that's a possibility. Um, I just think it's I, I think it's important that he comes up and get some experience. And listen, for people who are concerned about things like service clock and rookie of the year, here's the deal: the service clock doesn't matter because the Rangers intended that Josh Young, when he came up, would be here for good. So whether he gets 18 days of service this year or not, it's not going to impact when he becomes a free agent. Okay, the only guys that that really that that really impacts is guys who might become a a super two candidate at some point in time who'd get a significant amount of experience in their first year, but not a full year. The second part is rookie of the year. The Rangers did want to make sure that they kept his rookie status in place by keeping him up less than 30 days and, or less than 45 days and making sure he had less than 130 at bats. By doing that, he will retain rookie status for 2023. And there's real incentive for both the Rangers and for Josh in rookie of the year candidacy. Now with the new collective bargaining agreement, guys who finish in the top three in rookie of the year may net their team an extra draft pick and will net themselves a significant uh, bonus for that year. So the Rangers had all that in mind. I think what they really wanted to do was get him 100 plate appearances of competitive baseball at AAA before they were ready to call him up. He's up here now. He's going to play every day, played both ends of that doubleheader yesterday, and it, it's just all about experience. Right. I, I know that uh, the left side of that infield is a concern of yours, Evan, not because of uh, Josh Young, but because of uh, Corey Seager and uh, the fact that uh, ever since Chris Woodward was dismissed. He's kind of been in a little bit of a tailspin. He's been in an offensive funk. There's no doubt about it. I, he, he's he's hitting 213 since Woodward um, was dismissed, and that's that. That Woodward was a big reason why why Corey Seager came here. He was familiar with him. He knew that Chris Woodward would let him do his kind of somewhat peculiar pregame routine, which is very heavy on video and talking with hitting coaches uh, afar and not necessarily taking batting practice on the field. Um, and so he knew that Chris Woodward would, al- would allow for that. Uh, the Rangers have continued to kind of allow for that, but he's hitting, he, he struggled since Woodward has, has, has been dismissed. Um, the strikeouts are a little bit up. Appears like he's swinging a little bit earlier. His home run last night in the second game of the doubleheader was his first home run. It got him to 30, a career high, but it was his first home run in September. So I don't know if there's a little bit of a funk going on. I don't know if it's if it's fatigue because he is he, he hasn't played 150 games uh, since, I think, 2016 or 17, um, maybe 2018. Um, he's, he's struggling here to, to the end, and – Listen, I don't think it's a big long-term concern, but I, I do think at the end of this year you want to sit down with Corey Seager and have some conversation about what this team needs from him in terms of interaction with his teammates and in terms of engagement with his teammates versus how he prepares for games and what his responsibilities are going to be as really the, the, the big 
the big money guy in that clubhouse. Yeah, we've had these discussions before about uh, Corey, and it's not really in his personality to be uh, a lot of those things. And they knew that uh, going in. But I do think some of these things uh, that we talked about, as you just mentioned, about how, how he prepares for games and things, he, he needs to seem like he's part of the team. Uh, it's it's not a good situation when you've got one guy doing one th- way of getting ready for a game and everybody else is doing it another way. That's just not the way it's been done in baseball. Uh, the greatest players in the history of the game have gone out there taking batting practice with their teammates. Uh, and, and that's just a, that's just a good thing uh, to, for them to see that. And listen, if you, you, the ultimate defense to that is you put up a 900 OPS, but Corey's going to go through this year. And despite the fact that he, he really likes hitting at Globe Life Field in Arlington, he's posting, he, he's, he's just a slightly above average offensive player. If you look at OPS, it's about 770 right now. Um, and that's going to be his lowest for a full season uh, since uh, his lowest for a full season. He had lower one one year when he played like 25 games. But um, that's not a, it, at that point in time, there's not a defense for you to say, I got to go do my own thing because you're not performing at an elite level at that point. Right. Well, listen, uh, and, and I want us to take more time on this uh, at some point, but I, I'm excited about the new rules changes in baseball. Uh, I can't imagine you know i saw where the 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 players association said that they were they were voted against uh the uh, pitch clock and they voted against uh what was the other thing the shifts uh the the reason they were against the shifts is they thought that there were too many changes going on at one time um they would have been i think talking to marcus simeon who was on the executive committee not the competition committee they would have been more in line with if you had said we're only going to you can only have out infielders, two infielders on each side of the base. But if one of those could have gone to the outfield, that would have been okay. To say that you've got to have two infielders on the dirt, that was too, too a two-level change or a two-facet change that they thought was maybe a little bit too quick. As for the pitch clock, players don't like it, but they're going to have to get used to it. They just don't need to go through both the pitchers and players do not need to go through all of this pre-pitch um, uh, gesturing. And I, I think it's almost become an OCD thing with, with, with players that um, it, it just ends up taking so much time. And if, if you can get rid of some of that, I think you can speed up the games and get guys swinging and get balls put in action and get people hanging on every pitch instead of people falling asleep between them. I got to tell you, I don't understand any hitter who would object to the abolition of these shifts. It's just ridiculous to me that we watch the game just become the standpoint where, you know, obviously the, the 300 batting average doesn't really matter as much anymore to everybody. It's all about your OBP. It's all your OPS, your OPS plus, all of that. I get all that, but it's just watching game after game of a guy hits a laser out to right field and there's somebody standing out there 50 feet behind the infield and catches it. It's just that's that's no fun to watch that. The guy's supposed to hit the ball hard, and they're hitting the balls hard, and they're making outs. Every team sport has adjusted and evolved its defensive rules as teams have exploited the existing rules. We've seen it in the NFL. We've seen it in the NBA. We've seen it in the NHL. Baseball has seen shifts go to the absolute extreme. At, at one point in time, it was a worthwhile defense against guys who were, you know, 
far, far off the scale. But everybody's doing it against every hitter, and it has completely suppressed the idea of action. And I thought, I thought Chris Young said it very well. You know, he was a guy who was involved in the research and development of a lot of these rule changes when he was at Major League Baseball and proposing them. And he said, I don't have real strong feelings about the shift one way or another, but when something goes to the extreme, the game needs to adjust and balance out a little bit. Well, there's no question about it. And I, and I, I'm for this. I'm not for the making the bases bigger. I, I get the fact that maybe it makes it a little safer, especially down there at first base, uh, to have a bigger base. But I think the rest of it's kind of ridiculous. But I, I'm, I'm on board with everything else, uh, and I, and I'm excited to see what it means for baseball next year. I think it was, I think these are going to be. Big time improvements are going to shorten the games. That's going to it's going to open up the game. It's going to be more lively. Uh, the next thing, robot umpires. Well, I mean, robot umpires will be a change for fans. But I, I'm going to tell you something: fans will not notice any changes next year. What they will notice is simply a quicker, more actionable, more natural feeling game. That's what they're going to see. And so, yeah. I, I people that are are yelling about don't do don't do away with the shift. It's just like. I, 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 you just, you're, you're thinking in old, in old terms. That's just the only way I have to describe it. This is not the game that they grew up with. Everybody's complaining about all this. This is not the game you grew up with. No one played these kind of, everybody says, oh, they put, they did, they did not play these kind of shifts. They had occasional times when they might pull a shift like this, but not against every hitter. Occasional. I mean, Ted Williams was it, it, Ted Williams was the case study for shifts, right? He was the one guy shifted for like fifty years. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and of course, and people say, well, Ted Williams didn't get yeah, Ted. Ted Williams was the greatest hitter in the history of the game. I mean, that's what's ridiculous about these kind of arguments. That I I can't stand these arguments when people say that somebody else, you know, well, Tom Brady does. Yeah, he's the greatest quarterback ever. You know. Don't make those kind of comparisons. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment of the podcast. Now we're going to move over to college football. Uh, I tell you, these first two weekends of college football have been tremendous. We've seen some really great and fun games. Um, gone down to the wire. Uh, just a, a lot of, of, of great action. It's a great time to be a college football fan, and it's really it's really good when you consider, as someone wrote this, they talked about all the problems that in college football with NIL and the transfer portal and all these things that everybody complains about, and which I complained about too. And they said, as soon as the season starts, that'll all go away and just talk about football. And that and is the, essentially what is happening. And we'll deal with all the unequivalencies later on at some point in time. But like, if you're a Sunbelt fan, and you saw your teams win at Nebraska, at A&M, and at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, cow. it's That's pretty unbelievable. Isn't it? And in one weekend that that happens, and one, it got one guy fired. It, it would have gotten uh, the Notre Dame coach fired if he wasn't in his first year. Uh, and it might get Jimbo Fisher fired as the offensive coordinator at, at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, Jimbo was asked that question the other day. Uh, would you give up your play calling duties? And he didn't say no. He said, I'd. I would think about it. Uh, and of course, Jimbo's been asked that question since way back when he was at Florida state. Uh, and there are people who feel like that his offense is a little antiquated. Um, it is not kind of kept up with the times. He, he, he puts a lot on the quarterback, uh, which everybody does, but there are certain college offenses which simplify things greatly for quarterbacks. I'm thinking of Baylor when Art Bryles was there. Uh, and they had a lot of success with what they were trying to do. So um, I, I, 
uh, it will be interesting to watch to see what happens. I would think at the very least that Haynes King might be out as the starting quarterback at Texas A&M. Uh, I, I was surprised when Jimbo named him the starter uh, going into the season. I just assumed that Max Johnson, the transfer from LSU, would become the starting quarterback. He did not get that job. I don't think he played that poorly. I think that in the end, Jimbo decided that Haynes King has been sitting in this offense all this time. He knows it better, and he simply trusted him more. Um, We were kind of told about uh, Haynes' offensive uh, capabilities and the fact that he is very fast. Uh, And uh, and there was somebody, a friend of mine who's from uh, East Texas, said that someone from Longview told him this guy would be better than Johnny Manziel. And as soon as somebody says that to you, you should say, you're crazy. Uh, because, nobody, because again, nobody's going to be better than Johnny Manziel. As far as A&M goes, right, Johnny Manziel is the Tom Brady, or he is the Ted Williams, to go back to our last year. Yes, he, he is. Here, guys, to Johnny Manziel. No, you don't do that. I mean, and I've had people say to me, you know, that, oh, if you look now back over the years and that, that maybe Mike Evans is the one that made Johnny Manziel. It's like Mike Evans might have been making him Johnny Manziel when he was downfield blocking for him. Uh, because, because that's, because who, who else in the history of college football ran like that? I, I got to tell you, I've seen faster quarterbacks. I've seen bigger quarterbacks. Vince Young certainly was a, a treat to watch as a runner, but nobody was as fun to watch playing football as Johnny Manziel was. But here's the other thing. If people are saying that Mike Evans made Johnny Manziel also remember Mike Evans is probably the greatest receiver to come out of A&M. Yes, he so is. Take yes, that is. out of the mix. Take that whole dynamic out of the mix. There's no question about that got right now. Yeah. So I, so I, I, I would expect, I, I tell you, I, I've, I've watched Haynes play more this year than he, he barely played at all last year. He just kind of looks like a high school quarterback to me. And in, in today's in a, today's college football, which is almost the NFL, uh, you've got to have, I think you got to have a big kid back there. And I think you got to have somebody who's a, a dynamic talent. And that's what we saw Saturday when I was in Austin with Quinn Ewers. I did not get to see the game, his opener against Louisiana Monroe. I was in Arkansas, and, and they don't get television in Arkansas. And so uh, I, I couldn't watch yes, that. they do. They get It'll, television Okay, all right. Maybe something. Oh, I guess are, a couple of stations they get there. But, but at any rate, I couldn't see that. Well, uh, you know, he was – the numbers were not impressive uh, from his opener. He comes out against Alabama, and my gosh, I thought he was the best-looking quarterback Texas has had since, it, since at least Colt McCoy and maybe all the way back to Vince Young. I don't know when I've seen a guy who had as much arm talent at Texas as quarterback. Maybe never. Uh, are you I didn't comparing, see, I didn't see comparing, Bobby Lane play. So, are you comparing Quinn Ewers to, like, the greatest ever to play at Texas? I thought we just talked about this. No, 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 no. I'm saying it is arm talent. I'm not saying him as a quarterback. I'm, I, listen, what was great about Vince was that the, the, the fact that if he doesn't make this throw, uh, he's going he's gonna to take off. And when Vince takes off, well, you know, it's Superman, right? Uh, right. He's a lot like – he was like a uh, – in a lot of ways like a big Johnny Manziel. Uh, but uh, – uh, but Vy was not a great passer. Okay, he was he was an effective passer, and they they certainly did things to 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 help him and make him a better passer. Colt McCoy was a very nice quarter, college quarterback, uh, but Quinn Ewers, as people have said about him since he was in junior high, uh, looks like a, a a pro quarterback. This 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 guy looks like somebody who can make a living in the NFL. Uh, he was the ball just spun effortlessly out of his hands, uh, and. 
He had 134 yards passing in not even the complete first quarter against Alabama, which the week before, Blake Anderson, the Utah State coach, said, I don't know that I've ever seen a better team in pads in my life. So this is not some weak Alabama team that that walked into Austin the other day. This is a great Alabama team. And Quinn Ewers carved them up. Had Xavier Worthy caught a pass in the end zone, and had there not been a, uh, uh, which was a diving effort, I'll give him that, uh, but he dropped it after he hit the ground. And then there was also a play in the end zone where it looked like it was interference on an Alabama defensive back. Uh, Texas might have had a pretty healthy lead there after one quarter. I, the only thing I would dispute that you just said, Kevin, is I'm not sure this is a great Alabama team by Alabama stretches. Um, the no, again, I obsess over penalties, but – the number of penalties that Alabama committed down there um, was. Listen, was, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to wipe out Alabama because of, of one game on the road. Uh, I I think that there's too much talent in this team. There are people who will tell you that Will Anderson, uh, the linebacker at, at Alabama, is the best player in the country. They've got Bryce Young as a Heisman Trophy winner. They've got a lot of great players on this team, and Bryce Young in that game was outplayed in the first quarter by Quinn Ewers, but over the course of the game. Bryce Young did the Bryce Young kind of things that won him the Heisman Trophy. As on the very last drive, when uh, uh, a Texas player is coming in for the sack, and this is really going to screw up their chances, and what does he do? He ducks down underneath the sack, scrambles out of the way, and then sets them up for the uh, winning field goal. Yeah, that was so, – that was spe- in specific, that was, yes, a great play. Well, that, that, I, I think Alabama's going to be just fine. I think they screwed up a lot of stuff in that game. I think what happened in that game, frankly – was that they were expecting to dominate Texas. And I think when you go into a game and you think you're going to dominate another team uh, and you and you don't, I think it does rattle you a little bit. I think I think Alabama looked rattled in that game uh, for, for great parts of it. Now that they rallied at the end and do what great teams do, they pull it out and they won that game anyway. So that, that tells you a little bit about Alabama's greatness and the fact that, that Texas, Texas played very well in that game. Now, they lost Quinn Ewers, of course, uh, because of the injury to his uh, clavicle. Uh, we don't really know how long he's going to be out. I would imagine probably, you know, five or six weeks uh, with that at least. Uh, Hudson Card came in. He injured his right ankle in the in the game, stayed in the game. I asked him afterward, did anybody even ask you how you were feeling? Because I'm, I'm thinking at that point, if they thought if we're going to lose Hudson Card too, we got no shot at this game. Hudson played very well uh, in that game in a relief role and put them in a position to win that game. Uh, but now uh, there's a feeling that he might be out as well, and they might be down to Charles Wright, a redshirt freshman, their third-string quarterback. So uh, this is going to be difficult for uh, Texas uh, going forward if they're going to have to be playing with their third-string quarterback. But I thought that they showed a lot of things in that game uh, to give you reason to believe that they are making progress. And that was a a very real question going into this Alabama game. Uh, How much progress were they making? Because last year they were five and seven. I got to tell you, you go back several, a couple of decades to find uh, any coach uh, other than Charlie Strong who had more than one losing season uh, at Texas. Usually the one losing season got you fired. Uh, and he had his as his very first one. So, and then there was, and they didn't play so great at the at the end of last year either. But they look like a different team now. They look like, uh, much better, much more polished. Um, uh, I, I was impressed. So I'm starting to, to have second thoughts about the the hiring of Steve Sarkeesian, which I was never blown away with to begin 
with. This was a good step against Alabama. We'll see if they can sustain that. We'll see if they can play without their number one quarterback and maybe without their number two quarterback. Um, that that it, it is always an issue, isn't it? Everywhere at any level of, of football that you play, where the quarterback is always drawing the most attention uh, in this market. Uh, certainly, that has always been the case uh, in, in college football and in pro football uh, with the Cowboys that. They've had – I think it's almost been a curse for uh, for the Cowboys that they've had so many great quarterbacks. Everyone's always judged by the level of the ones before them. I saw someone the other day say that, that Dak was the worst quarterback in Cowboys history by far. By far. I think, don't you don't you remember Quincy Carter? Chad Hutchinson? What, what about those guys? That's what, the, that's what we do with these guys. All right, is there anything else we need to talk about, boys? No. There is not. <laughs> That's it. We've covered everything. Nothing. Do we? Um, I think we've all decided that the Cowboys are going to lose this week. Do we have predictions on scores? Yeah. Uh, on the, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Joe Burrow. Speaking of quarterbacks, did not uh, have a good start to his season. Four interceptions. My gosh, in, in the Bengals opener. I don't even know how you are even in a game where you've thrown four interceptions and you had a fumble. He had five turnovers in that game, and they were still in it. Um, I would expect that Joe's going to bounce back uh, pretty well from that. And I, I don't I don't see the Cowboys winning that game. I'm going to say Bengals 21, Cowboys 10. I've got a 10-point win for the Bengals. David? You guys are actually going to side with Joe Burrow over Cooper Rush and that duel at quarterback? Yeah. Hard is as that, that is I'm, to believe, yes, we are I'm going to do that. From you two. Yeah. I would – yeah, that the only the very quickly, the only thing, if you're a team facing Dallas going forward and you know how compromised they are offensively, why would you take many risks down the field and allow that defense, which is the Cowboys' strength, to hurt you? Wouldn't you play conservative offensively and figure this offense isn't going to be able to beat us? We just don't want to turn it over. We don't want to get sacked. There's no way they can hang with us over the course of the game. Now, but I will say Joe Burrow has such supreme confidence in his ability, he can go out and turn the ball over five times, and they still would have won that game if they hadn't missed an extra point and uh, shanked a field goal there in overtime. So I, I think they'll get some picks off of him, but I, I, I got to think Cincinnati wins this game easily. Yeah, me too. All right. It's a, it was a depressing get day on Sunday. I got to tell you, Cowboys first game out of the bag. That was that was no way to to watch football. Holy cow! I, I will say this: my my wife and my daughter in law have their own podcast. It's, was that we don't really have any materials for. We don't have any you know uh, microphones or anything, but they do their own little running gig here. It was very entertaining watching that game. I, I may I may bring them on one of these days and have them as guests on our podcast. Just record it. Record it while they watch the game. We can play I, it. And- I, might, I might do that. I, I thought some of the things, the observations they made were just as smart as anything we've ever said, which, of course, isn't saying a whole lot. But uh, anyway, uh, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for tuning in with us. We're sorry that we were kind of been a little hit and miss the last couple of weeks, but we promise we're going to have it every week from here on out for at least the next five years. I think that's in our contract, isn't it? No? Yeah, yeah. the contract I saw, yes. That, that certainly yeah. stipulates that. <laughs> exactly. All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.